Hey, How the Church Works listeners, this is producer Heather again with a few quick announcements. First, if you missed our Instagram live event earlier this week, never fear, you can just replay it on IGTV. Just go to our Instagram, which is at How the Church Works, click on the little triangle on our profile and watch it from there. Second, we're still looking for listener stories about Adventist education. Whether you've been a student, a teacher, a parent, whether your experience was good or bad, we'd love to hear about it, and we might even include it in our episode on Adventist education that's coming up in a few weeks. If you want to share, send us a recording, 30 seconds to a minute long, to hello at howthechurchworks.com. And last, if you want to see more projects like How the Church Works in the future, there's a few things that you can do to help us out. You can rate and review us, share us with your friends, or send us a note about how the podcast has impacted you. This project is a bit of an experiment, so your support now will pave the way for the church to do more projects like this in years to come. You can email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com. All right, here's the show. In the summer of 2020, the United States experienced a civil rights movement in the middle of a global pandemic. With the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968, and the passing of the Civil Rights Act a few days later, American culture at large seemed to check off the civil rights movement as complete. And has often considered conversations about racism and equality a necessity of the past. But the murder of George Floyd, as he was in custody of Minneapolis police officers on May 25, 2020, along with the disturbing details of the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and so many others over just the past decade, forced an America that had separated itself from the blatant racism and oppression of the past to take a hard look in the mirror and ask, have the American ideals of freedom and dignity, and the dreams of the civil rights movement really been fulfilled. And if Seventh-day Adventism's original context was the 1800s America, a state deeply rooted in the exploitation and enslavement of Black people, and the church in North America's current context is the 21st century, living in the aftermath of over 400 years of oppression and enslavement of those people, is it possible that we as a church still have a ways to go in living out Paul's declaration in Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we're talking about some tough things in the next two episodes, and you may leave feeling frustrated or challenged. I hope you do. But we encourage you to listen with an open mind and an open heart. For people like me, who grew up in largely homogenous white Adventist circles, this episode might be a total paradigm shift. But for others, this is the American and Adventist history that they've always known, and the Seventh-day Adventist church that they've always experienced. I'm Nina Villato. And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works, 
a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In this episode, we're talking about Adventism and race in North America. Adventism's roots in abolitionism, what changed, and why we have work to do. This is part one. It is time. 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 It is time for Andrews University to apologize for the systemic racism it has perpetuated. On February 18, 2017, a group of black students at Andrews University, the quote, flagship Adventist University, and the home of the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, published this video. And their families have often submitted grievances expressing the racism and hate that they've experienced. From past grievances such as forced segregation in the cafeteria. To present grievances such as a lack of proper ethnic representation among faculty and administration. During the school's Black History Weekend, a guest preacher who was Black spoke on injustice. During the sermon, he made some statements that were seen as overly political and attacking by white students. When the students complained to the provost, the school responded with an apology. But other students at Andrews, Black students, they had experienced issues of racism on the Andrews campus and received no apologies from the school, despite filing complaints. So they made their voices heard. For decades, our friends and our family have asked for a response, but our university has remained silent. You would think that after 143 years, a faith-based university would feel compelled to follow the biblical counsel on reconciliation. You would think that it would have already said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This wasn't the first time young Black Adventists had spoken out about racism. Southern Adventist University, for example, experienced outcries of their own in both 2016 and 2018 when speakers during Black History presentations were derided with racist language by students and former students on social media. In 2018, Walla Walla University came under scrutiny when a student posted a racist photo to Snapchat, tantamount to blackface, and students protested in the student paper, The Collegian. And when Michael Brown was killed by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, on August 9, 2014, Andrews University students in undergraduate, graduate, and seminary programs held conversations on racial reconciliation and marches for racial justice through nearby Benton Harbor and St. Joseph, Michigan. The legacy of Black Adventist students protesting mistreatment goes back until at least the 1930s. For Black Adventists, these are just some of the most recent entries in a long history for the push for parity. As Adventist historian and retired GC General Vice President Dr. Calvin Rock calls it. But unfortunately, many white Adventists find the reality that Black Adventists experience racism, not just in the world, but within our own Adventist institutions, a hard pill to swallow. And part of the reason why is that outside of the Black Adventist community, we don't really talk about this part of our history enough. 
some don't even know that early Adventism was abolitionist. And if they do, it's too easy to claim that legacy today without actually applying the theology that led Adventists to be abolitionists to our current context. So to understand what's going on in our church today and the larger social context of American Christianity and culture, we're going to take you back to the beginning. We talked with our friend Pedrito Maynard-Reed, who you heard in episode two, The Good Old Days. Let's go back to historic Adventism. The Adventism of Ellen White and James White and Joseph Bates and Miller and Joshua V. Himes, the great Millerite, was very anti-slavery and not racist at all. As I told you, as I've said before, we fought against it totally and said we got to God, people, uh, all God's children, including Blacks who are slaves, are children of God. All people all are created in the image of God, and we are supposed to treat them like human beings. And we were prepared to speak out against it. As we talked about in episode two, Millerism was very much intertwined with abolitionism. Some of this probably has to do with the fact that it originated in the northern free state of Maine. But there were also many black Methodists. The Methodist church being one of the groups whose congregants were drawn to William Miller's message. And when Miller began preaching on the second Advent message, the presence of black Millerites and black Millerite preachers grew including people like John W. Lewis. Sojourner Truth, a former slave, a preacher, and an advocate for civil rights and abolition, had close ties to the Adventists, even to the point where she's buried in the same cemetery as Ellen White in Battle Creek, Michigan, along with many other Adventist pioneers. Frederick Douglass, one of the most important voices in the fight for abolitionism, also had ties with Millerism and early Adventists. Recent research by our friend Kevin Burton and other historians unearthed the sermon he gave to the Millerites, in which he expressed unbounded regard for the Second Advent believers. Douglas had such an important connection within Adventist circles that the Review and Herald, the official paper of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, would update its readers about his work and life and published a eulogy for him when he died in 1895. While Douglas himself never became a Seventh-day Adventist, his daughter did, and she was an active part of a church called the First Seventh-day Adventist Church in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about that church later. The Millerites and the Adventists' involvement to abolish slavery was a strange one in Christian circles. Many Christians in the South used the Bible to prop up slavery as a godly institution. One of the other things that distinguishes the Millerites from the evangelical majority is that the Millerites, because of their abolitionism, they called slavery a sin. This is Kevin Burton, assistant professor of church history at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary and director of the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University. We heard from him in episode two. He knows a lot about the Millerites and abolition because it's what he's studying for his PhD. The evangelicals were not willing to call slavery a sin. 
And John R. McKivigan has pointed that out very clearly in his book, The War Against Pro-Slavery Religion. This is a big difference. And what that means practically is this. If you're willing to say that slavery is a sin, and of course that you're advocating that Christ is coming soon to judge, that means you have to repent of the sin of slavery if you want to be saved for eternity. And here's the big difference. If you're doing that, that means that you're having to make reform on earth. You're having to reform yourself, which is part of reforming society on earth. And so this is a key thing that makes the Millerite majority abolitionists. Joseph Bates, the rugged old sea captain, who is one of the co-founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and one of the shapers of our Sabbatarian theology, became an active abolitionist when he realized not doing so would be inconsistent with his Christian beliefs. He writes this in his autobiography. I then began to feel the importance of taking a decided stand on the side of the oppressed. My labor in the cause of temperance had caused a pretty thorough sifting of my friends, and I felt that I had no more that I wished to part with. But duty was clear that I could not be a consistent Christian if I stood on the side of the oppressor, for God was not there. Neither could I claim his promises if I stood on neutral ground. Hence, my only alternative was to plead for the slave, and thus I decided. Most evangelicals in the North as well as the South did not support abolition. If they were trying to do anything regarding slavery at all, they would support uh, colonization, which was basically a movement to expatriate all Black people from America and make America white. It was quite a racist movement because most evangelicals, most Americans didn't want to live in the same country with a Black person. And so they were trying to come up with ways to, to have them out of the country. And that was a, a key way. And so they sent uh, several thousand people to Africa between 1816 and the Civil War. What Kevin is talking about here is the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America, later renamed the American Colonization Society. Bates talks about this society in his autobiography. For a while, it appeared that the movers on this work were honest in their declarations respecting the free people of color and the abolition of slavery in the Union, but it became evident that the members of these colonization societies were the worst enemies of the free people of color and clearly manifest that they labored to perpetuate slavery in the slaveholding states and manifest the most bitter opposition to anti-slavery men and measures. That's what the evangelical majority is about. Um, and the Millerites stand out very differently from the evangelical majority uh, when it comes to issues of politics and their views of, of society. And so um, even though they are, they are part of these churches, there are major differences. As the date the Millerites thought Jesus would return grew closer, Joseph Bates felt a growing conviction that he needed to go to the South to preach Jesus' soon return to everyone both white, wealthy plantation owners, the enslaved, and anyone in between. I was told that if I went south, the slaveholders would kill me for being an abolitionist. I saw there was some danger, but imperative duty and desire to benefit them and unburden my soul overbalanced all such obstacles. In his travels, Bates encountered hostility and anger about the Advent Doctrine, that's the teaching that Jesus was coming soon and what it meant for their way of life. One of the trustees that refused us the use of their meeting house arose and commenced denouncing the Advent doctrine in a violent manner. 
In a few moments, he seemed to be lost in his arguments and began to talk about riding us on a rail. Riding on a rail is an 18th and 19th century punishment, where an unwanted person is placed on a rail, riding a 2x4, and carried out and dumped on the edge of town. Bates' rebuttal was nothing less than a burn. I said, we are all ready for that, sir. If you will put a saddle on it, we would rather ride than walk. It wasn't easy for the Millerites to stand up against the status quo. In fact, it cost them greatly. Their friends, church communities, and even their safety was threatened. But they felt that it was necessary because Jesus was coming soon. So when the Great Disappointment happened on October 22, 1844, and Jesus didn't return, did that change how the former Millerites approached abolition? No, it didn't. Early Seventh-day Adventist pioneers still held on to the beliefs that Jesus was returning soon and that slavery was a critical stain on the American cloth. And as the Adventists became more organized and empowered to speak prophetically into the world around them, their call for the ending of the scourge of slavery became even stronger. And so in 1850, what's going on in America is that the government passes what's called the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. So it became federal law that you had to actually assist any slave catcher or slave owner coming north to try to find their quote-unquote property. If you happen to be assisting a slave on the Underground Railroad, it was even more troubleson for you because you were going to be fined uh, $1,000, which is an astronomical amount, and you were going to serve time in jail, several months in fact. And so this is a serious thing. The Millerites didn't just think that this law was cruel. Through their study of scripture, they felt it was in clear and direct violation of scripture. And they know that in Deuteronomy 23, it specifies that if a slave runs away from his master, he should have his freedom. He is entitled to his freedom. And he's entitled to live wherever he wants to, he or she even if it's within your gates. In other words, it's your next door neighbor. And the text also says, thou shalt not oppress him. And so Adventists, whenever the fugitive slave comes out, they say that is God's fugitive slave law and federal law is directly violating the laws of God. Biblical prophecy is also a huge part of the Adventist identity. Not just that Jesus is coming soon, but the symbolism in the book of Revelation, that there are beasts, dragons, representing powers that will be present in the end times. An abolitionist named Garrett Smith, who was a friend of Frederick Douglass and had been a Millerite, drew a line between the beast in Revelation 13, the one with two horns, and the United States, and its claim that all men are created equal, yet actively denied civil liberties to the enslaved and formerly enslaved. He starts to say, wait a second, I'm reading Revelation here and I see this beast in Revelation 13 that's got two horns. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Most Millerites were talking about the, that representing France. He's like, I, I don't think that's France. I think that's the United States of America. And I think it's the United States of America because America claims to uphold civil liberty and religious liberty that must be what those two horns represent. And yet it speaks like a dragon because it denies civil liberty and religious liberty to racial 
and religious minorities. So America is that beast. And the Fugitive Slave Law proves that to be a fact. Smith made a chart, a prophecy chart, explaining this idea, and Adventists began to consider and discuss this interpretation. And many of them agreed. Kevin tells us about a month after the law passed, Ellen White had a vision. And she sees that two-horned beast in vision and, and says, this is of God. This doctrine is, is of God. She says, we've got to have this chart. We've got to publish this chart so that every Adventist minister can have it and they can preach this wherever they go. These pieces of our history show us just how much abolition and fighting for the oppressed is part of our DNA as Adventists. It's even woven throughout our understandings of prophecy. All of these things about abolitionism are actually worked into our very core beliefs. It is part of our fundamental beliefs to be an abolitionist. And so this is vital. And it becomes even clear because when Ellen White later responds to the Fugitive Slave Law directly herself, uh, she actually tells our pioneers, you must break it. You must break federal law because it violates God's law. Now, people need to just let that sink in and step back because it's like, hold up, wait a minute. Our prophet is telling us to break federal law? Why, yes, yes, she did. And why is she doing that? She's doing that because she believes that they're living in the very end of time, and she is specifying that there are going to be laws that are passed by human beings at the very end of time that Adventists are going to be duty-bound to oppose and reject. And some of those laws, as she specifies explicitly, are about race. It's not just about a National Sunday law coming. Adventists are not just going to have to worry about that law and having to violate those kinds of laws. They're also going to have to violate any laws that go against God's laws about the sanctity and the full humanity of all people. And so this is really radical stuff. The early Adventists were very serious about this. Within Adventism, there's always diversity, dialogue, and conversation. But there are some things that the early Adventists felt were non-negotiable, and their stance on slavery and racism was one of them. Whenever a pro-slavery Adventist actually surfaces in the early 1860s, she's very strong and says he must be disfellowshipped and any other Adventist who is going to support slavery must be disfellowshipped. And what's critical here, she's talking to Alexander Ross, who lives in New York. Slavery is abolished in New York. Alexander Ross does not own slaves. He is simply racist. And so Ellen White is telling him, you must be disfellowshipped because we cannot have our reputation being tainted uh, by pro-slavery ideology, by racist ideology. There is evidence that the very first General Conference president, John C. Byington, who was elected in 1863, just two years after the beginning of the Civil War, was an agent on the Underground Railroad in St. Lawrence County, New York, assisting fugitive slaves on their journey to finding freedom in the North. Adventist leaders didn't just speak out against slavery. They spoke out against racial discrimination, too. Their belief in equality extended beyond freedom. They advocated equal rights for all races. And so Joseph Bates is petitioning for his state, Massachusetts, to abolish all of its laws that make distinctions upon the basis of color. And in order to appreciate this, you have to understand that Jim Crow segregation laws are a Northern invention. 
Almost all the Northerners are racist to the point that they will not walk down the same side of the street with a black person if they're white. I mean, it's serious. You do not eat at the same table. You do not sleep in the same house or the same room. You do not ride in in transportation the same way. If you're black, you're going to ride in the Negro car on the train. But in Adventist circles, white people and black people were in community together. They saw each other as human beings that were truly equal something that came from their theology and close reading of the Bible, but was unfortunately uncommon amongst other professed Christian denominations, who at times had experienced schisms because of questions like, can a slaveholder be a bishop? You see Adventist pioneers like the whites sleeping in black homes, eating at their tables, and you see black Adventists staying in white homes and eating at their tables. You see them traveling together. You see them breaking all sorts of social norms because they believe in the full humanity of all people. And Joseph Bates recognizes this, and he's also using uh, legal means, political means, to try to abolish these laws. And so he's petitioning against all laws in Massachusetts that that, uh, make distinctions on the basis of color. Um, He's also petitioning against specifically Jim Crow train cars. He's also petitioning against the, the state's law that says black people and white people cannot intermarry or Native Americans and white people cannot intermarry. And what's amazing is that Massachusetts actually abolishes that law in 1843. And the train companies voluntarily in 1843 also abolished the Jim Crow cars. And so Joseph Bates and our pioneers are actually somewhat involved. I mean, in the level of petitioning, there were many other people, of course, but they're actually involved in getting these laws successfully overturned. As the Civil War approached, a new crop of young Adventists took the stage and used their voices to advocate further for change. Uh, Was it Uriah Smith who wrote a letter as a young Adventist at the time when he became, when he started getting involved in Adventism, he was only 23 years old. And he wrote a letter to to the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, chastising him. Because he said, the reason that you support the Civil War is not really because you wanted to free slaves, it's because you wanted to save the Union. You really didn't like slave, free slaves. You just wanted to save the Union. That was your priority. And to do that, you had to defeat these people who were keeping slaves. Early Adventists. They saw this as a sin. They saw this as a sign of Jesus' coming. And they saw slavery, that social thing, as disgraceful. That was early. That's the root of Adventism. After the war, Adventists did not believe their work was done, but rather that it had only just begun. One day after June 19, 1865, also known as Juneteenth, and celebrated as the day the last slaves were finally notified that they had been freed, Uriah Smith wrote again, this time in the Adventist Review. Is slavery dead? The question of the reconstruction of the rebel states is now coming up. And in this question, the status of the Negro is involved. What rights shall be granted him? With what privileges shall he be clothed? Having helped to free the nation from a terrible rebellion, shall he now be accounted a citizen of that nation? This question the president has already declared must be decided by the people, the whites of the respective states concerned. Answer. Slavery will be dead only in name. It will still exist in fact. There will still be bondmen in this land, bound in fetters of disfranchisement, 
proscription and prejudice, more galling and oppressive than the iron manacles that have heretofore clanked upon their bleeding limbs. James and Ellen White's son Edson had struggled to find a place within the Adventist movement, much like many young Adventists experience when they grow up in the church today. But with the new opportunity to minister to the needs of a newly freed population in the South, he found his niche. Edson White purchased a riverboat called the Morning Star and floated up and down the Mississippi, giving literacy training and functioning as a mobile church for recently freed Blacks in the state. Not only did the Morning Star offer access and mobility, it provided safety. The Morning Star had been attacked by racist whites on occasion and had the ability to float down the river when they needed a safe environment for students to learn. The Adventists began sending their first missionaries soon after the Civil War to the American South. As Adventist congregations were growing in both the North and the South, the Southern Reconstruction period ended. This ushered in the extreme Jim Crow laws designed to disenfranchise Black people through segregation, voter suppression, and other means. But Ellen White gave clear counsel about how Adventists should approach worshiping together. In her 1891 address, Our Duty to the Colored People, she preached, You have no license from God to exclude the colored people from your places of worship. Treat them as Christ's property, which they are, just as much as yourselves. They should hold membership in the church with the white brethren. Every effort should be made to wipe out the terrible wrong which has been done them. Due to Adventism's abolitionism and mission work in the South, there was an influx of Black Adventists into the church. And fairly soon, there were Black pastors serving both Black and white congregations. But that's not the end of the story. Almost 100 years after Black pastors started serving in integrated congregations, the Adventist church's schools would be some of the last to desegregate. How did we get here? Next time on How the Church Works, The Road to Regional Conferences. How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Vallado and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week, Kevin Burton and Pedrito Maynard-Reed. And thank you to Brittany Husett, Stephen Husett, and James Giganti for lending their voice acting talents. You can find bonus content and show notes for this episode on HowTheChurchWorks.com. This episode was written by Nina Vallado with help from me, and it was produced by me, Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by Nina Vallado. Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, website and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Husett. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Kayla Beisley, and Nina Vallado. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you have something to say, you can email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com. 